This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour on this 25th day of October 2023. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you joining us today. The nation of Hungary is at the crossroads of Europe, and it's a country with a complex and sinuous history. Even if you look just at the recent era, Hungary was under a fascist regime during World War II, and then under a communist regime in the Warsaw Pact. And then ever since 2010, it's been ruled by Viktor Orban. Prime Minister Orban has been making headlines more and more these days with some analysts sounding the alarm, saying he's a dictator drifting toward fascism. But then others say Orban is a noble defender of Judeo-Christian values and, in fact, one of the last few protectors of the kind of religion and family values that are demonized by the left. So which of these views is right? Well, we have a guest on the show today, Dr. Gabor Ivanyi. He is based in Budapest, Hungary's capital city, and he is a former anti-communist activist. And like Viktor Orban, Dr. Ivanyi helped topple the Soviet puppet regime that was installed in Hungary. Today, Dr. Ivanyi's voice is quite a familiar one throughout Hungary. He's one of the nation's best-known religious leaders. He's a Methodist minister and the leader of the church group called Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship, which has about 18,000 followers. Dr. Ivanyi officiated at Orban's wedding, and he actually baptized Orban's children as well. Ivanyi's path has diverted away from Orban's in recent years, but for better or worse, he and Orban have been dealing with each other for decades now. And Dr. Ivanyi has a great deal to say about freedom and religion in Viktor Orban's Hungary, which we'll hear all about in an interview that he gave to trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. And then our last word today takes a look at the turmoil and the upheaval that are shaking the nations and even happening inside our own governments. And it asks, during this time, when so much credibility has been squandered, where can we put our trust? What can we really have faith in? So that'll be at the end of the program, and we'll begin now with this look at the true state of Viktor Orban's Hungary, and this interview conducted by trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic with Gabor Ivanyi. And just a quick note about this, I wanted to briefly mention that Dr. Ivanyi spoke through a translator for this interview, and the interview was also edited for clarity and flow. Here it is. Obviously, you've been working both as a minister of religion and as a political activist for a long time going back to the communist era for our uh listeners and readers that may not know as much about what life was like for religious people especially in that era could you give me some background as to what life was like trying to be a religious person in in the communist regime 
the story of the Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship, our church, dates back to the communist era. Uh, it was just 50 years ago in 1973 that the history of the Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship started. Uh, and the, the, the start was following that uh, in the Methodist church, there was one uh, existing Methodist church in Hungary at that time. And the management of the church tried to accept the interference of the Hungarian communist state into the matters and, for example, elections of that Methodist church. And a big group of uh, pastors within the Methodist church decided that they will pay attention to their ecclesiastical laws and code and will not uh, accept the interference of the Hungarian communist state. And they started to protest against this. And as a result, the Methodist Church split it. A great group of pastors were uh, protesting. I personally was consecrated at that time as a young person as a pastor and this was the this was how the Hungarian evangelical fellowship came into being and started and that uh, the big majority of pastors said no to the interference of the communist states as a result the collaborative part of the methodist church those who were collaborating with the hungarian communist state and the and the state authorities in their cooperation we were expelled from the church with 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 the false uh, accusations mm -hmm. and it resulted in that we have lost lots of properties so the congregations our congregations have lost uh, their properties the real estates it took place that many of us have been preaching on the street for a long time for for years even five of us got suspended imprisonment as a result but in spite of all these uh, calamities we did manage to kind of organize a house or flat uh, academy for pastor training and also a kind of uh, regular support of the involved congregations after eight years of struggle uh, the hungarian state realized that as they cannot put an end to to this uh, protest movement they cannot eliminate us they decided to sit down to negotiate with this expelled part of the church. And then at the end, they recognized us as a new church. This is how the Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship came into being. And during this time of, of our recognition and struggle with the communist church, I got to know and made acquaintances, friendships with the the non-religious uh, Hungarian so-called democratic opposition in the communist era. I did take part in their uh, actions and, and protests, some kind of uh, events. And this was the time when the Samizdat press came into being. There was an iconic Samizdat paper journal of the Hungarian democratic opposition called the, the, the Parole. You know, when you, when you are in prison and you can get a kind of a talk, a talking opportunity with your relatives. In Hungarian, it means speaking or speaker. Beszélő, that, is, that, is, that was the meaning that uh, it was uh, in, in, a, in a grid or in, in bars. In spite of the prohibitions, we did step up and speak. Uh, and also there was a, another civil organization established by these uh, intelligentsia groups called the Supportive Fund for the Poor, 
one important uh, aspect of this civil organization was that they openly spoke up for the poor in the communist regime and and they acknowledged that there is such an issue as poverty, such a social issue as poverty, which was denied by the Hungarian communist state. And the other, it was that this supportive fund was actively organizing supports and donations for the poverty-stricken social groups of Hungary. And when in 1989 and 90, the change of the regime took place in Hungary, and there was the first free elections held, I also became a member of parliament, an MP. And I take it it's uh, during those early days with the intelligentsia groups, that's when you met Viktor Orban for the first time? Yeah, of course. um, I do remember well that it was in 1989 that I uh, made acquaintances with Viktor Orban. He was a law student at that time at the end of his uh, university studies. Uh And he had a very, very, very convincing kind of appearance and and way of communication uh, he was an excellent speaker as a convincing person he was a, a kind of hopeful uh, politician young politician or a would-be politician promising good hopes that's how the impression was about him at that time much of his persona is based off of claiming to be a really religious man and whatnot did he strike you as being interested in religion at that time Uh, At that time, there were no real religious interests in him at that time. Uh, Rather, he was quite critical towards religions. But with me, he was cherishing a kind of friendly terms, although he knew that I'm a pastor. But he was uh, critical at that time of of religions. I believe after... um... 1989 happened and the fall of communism, he went to you to uh, renew his religious marriage and to uh, get his children baptized. Uh, what changed? This happened that uh, the religious renewal of his marriage and the baptism of uh, his children, uh, as far as I remember, took place in 1995. And at that time, to my impression, he he realized that kind of social environment that came into being after the change of the regime uh, was was demanding that there should be some kind of change in religious matters. Religion was either tolerated, just tolerated, or forbidden. So he, Orban, Viktor Orban, he realized that there should be some kind of change and there is a social demand for that change. But he did not have real contact with any religions. So this is why he turned to me. Just to bring everything up to speed chronologically for the 1990s, the 2000s, obviously there's a lot less pressure from the government at this point for Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship. How would you describe the church's activities at this point with taking care of the poor and whatnot, just to give people an idea of what programs the church is involved in? So in 2010, when the second Fidesz government, when the second Orban government came into power, there came came about a big change 
uh, Viktor Orban over-proclaimed a kind of whole ground or whole court attack in which the, the whole of your political group attacks and, and uh, try to exercise power and force on the opposing groups. As a part of this kind of movement, a new ecclesiastical law or church law was created. They eliminated the constitution and instead they created a so-called kind of basic law but this was not a consensual decision, but this was a kind of dictatum of the Fidesz uh, ruling party with the, their two-third majority in parliament. So at that time, the Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship was running at around 40 social institutions, educational institutions, schools, social institutions, caring homes for the elderly, homeless shelters, refugee shelter, and also a, a college called John Wesley Theological College, uh, and also a, a hospital. And and this was uh, these were kind of mainly social institutions apart from the congregations of the Hungarian fellowship. So besides the congregations, and these were all catering for and doing service for the poor, the underprivileged, and the special need people or or uh, disabled people. To my great surprise or astonishment, right at 2010, when the second Orban government came into power, I was ordered by the government to to name those persons or, or those organizations to whom I hand over these institutions. And my answer was that I, I don't understand why I should hand these institutions over, and I'm not willing to hand them over to anyone. And after this, that I answered that I'm not willing to hand these institutions over to anyone, then a kind of process or procedure started which has been in in uh, in progress since 13 years now they were extracting all kinds of uh, material support financial support from our institutions that were doing state jobs state tasks uh, this process arrived up to present point where now we are having zero financial support from the state, although Hungarian laws uh, mandate that if uh, a civil organization or a church undertakes any jobs that would be a state task, then they are entitled to regular subsidies. Uh, we have never been asking any subsidies for our congregations, but for our social institutions and educational institutions, schools uh, that are fulfillment of state tasks, and now uh, we arrived at the point that I cannot give any salaries to my colleagues. They are started to quit. Our, our, our kitchens are about to close. Our homeless shelters are struggling gravely. So this is how the process arrived at this point. Beginning step of this process was the kind of new church law introduced in 2011, new ecclesiastical law. And the core point of this law was that there used to be kind of uh, hundreds of uh, churches and small uh, denominations in Hungary, but uh, the parliament decided that only 13 out of these was acknowledged or recognized as churches. The church status have been taken away from all the rest. After one or two years struggle, 15 denominations uh, status was restored 
but the various other were still not restored. So they were not recognized as churches. And since then, they have been continually kind of changing here, changing there, this law. And as a result, four years ago in 2019, it arrived at a point that they created uh, the, the, the freshest version of this church law was that it is practically impossible to get the recognized church status back. With this church law, exactly how does that law specifically impact what the organization does? The structure of the, the state financing and state subsidies is that there is a kind of basic subsidy, which is enough for kind of 40% of the of a social institution's budget. And there are the kind of supplementary subsidy for which churches are entitled, recognized churches are entitled. As we are not a recognized church, we are not entitled to this supplementary, the biggest part of the budget. And with a recognized church status, these churches can negotiate a kind of agreement with the state for these subsidies and support. But the Fidesz government is not willing to negotiate any deal, any agreement with us. So we have been struggling to cater for all our 20,000 clients, poor people, homeless people, refugees, disadvantaged children in schools, in underprivileged areas. Uh, we have been struggling to, uh, to serve them without these state subsidies, which uh, amounts up to 40% of our regular budget. So we have been struggling to serve our uh, clients without these subsidies. From what you've been describing, it sounds like the Orban government is trying to pressure you to hand over these institutions in a in a power grab. Power Obviously, grab? Power grab, uh, yes. Uh-huh, yeah. Is this just Orban trying to get more power to himself, or is there any other particular reason you could think of why he's giving this kind of pressure? For a great part, it is really a power grab, uh, but also the other factor in this scenario is that everything that we are doing, all our activities, we are uh, serving for the most underprivileged, the most poor, the most poverty-stricken, and this is not, not a kind of cause for the government. From the most poor people, uh, the government is only interested in their votes. Unfortunately, it is the nature of things that they do get it but they don't want to do anything else for these uh, poor groups. Everything you've been describing to me sounds a lot like religious persecution, which mm -hmm. in a nominal Western democracy, normally governments don't do this kind of thing. Would would you consider this yourself religious persecution? In my understanding, is uh, religious persecution. Today, I'm giving a press conference also on our situation and the kind of pro-Israeli uh, proclamation. Uh, and I do want to elaborate during this press conference that this is the kind of religious persecutions. And actually, all those um, church or ecclesiastical characters, figures, or politicians who interfered in these matters during the past 13 years, they were interfering in, in a way of religious persecution. And actually, the government is doing a kind of over-support 
for for the servile and collaborative churches and uh, on the other hand is uh, persecuting those who are critical in any uh, political matters be it kind of uh, the support of the poor support of refugees uh, ukraine um, jewish people uh, or any kind of matter so criticals are persecuted yes it almost sounds like what you've been describing to me that the same tactics that the communists were giving to you in the 1970s and the 1980s that's what orban is doing to you today would would you agree that there there is a parallel there it is kind of similar tactics and uh, maneuvers and style but uh, i do have to say that this is what orban is doing is more inhumane because uh, in the in the in the communist era their their intention was was conspicuous you know kind of eliminate uh, critical voices and eliminate church and this in this case uh, here with the with the orban governments it is also covered with a kind of hypocritical religious rhetorics and this also results in a kind of great decrease in the number of believers so the the freshest surveys show that lots of people are quitting the churches and how has he been able to get away with this in a country that is on paper part of the european union part of nato most countries in Europe and in the West, this kind of behavior would get somebody in prison normally. How has he been able to to keep going the, thus far? I cannot really say how Orban was able to get away with this. His country uh, and also with lots of his colleagues, they have done lots of things that at the minimum they should have resigned after this but they could be sitting in a prison. And it is also a kind of a puzzle for me how we can remain the, the member of the NATO in spite of Orban's doing very, very pro-Putin politics or policies. It's also a puzzle how we can remain the member of the EU in spite of Orban's very, very severe anti-Brussels campaigns. And actually he is collaborating with such states that are practically Christian persecutors. For example, it was a, a symbolically kind of horrific or, or incomprehensible gesture or move that August the 20th is the commemoration of the Hungarian state converting to Christianity a thousand years ago. That is our top state national uh, festivity or feast. And on this day, Mr. Erdogan was invited to Hungary and the, the fireworks started with a kind of explosion of a small moon, the half moon, actually. Uh, and um, Orban's reasoning for, for this alliance policy is that we are Hungarians in the brotherhood of the Kipchak, Turkish nations and peoples. But actually, almost without uh, an exception, these states are authoritarian states. And these are his allies. And I'm just simply startled to see up to what point it can get. They are all uh, anti-Christian uh, governments and uh, china belongs to them as well in china christians are persecuted but in the other turkish states as well which were which are which are post-soviet states as well in a great majority so you mean the, the countries in central asia like kazakhstan and 
Yes, yes, yes. Have any other religious organizations been impacted by the government like yours has with persecution? Yes, yes, yes. Lots of other small uh, denominations are involved in this persecution. And actually, as for the official support data of the churches, we are at around the fourth or fifth place because there is a kind of custom in Hungary that each year taxpayers can offer 1% of their tax to a church. And uh, upon these 1% offers, we are at the fourth or fifth place in Hungary. 73,000 people offer their tax uh, 1% for us. We are at the fourth and fifth place together with the Krishna uh, believers. But lots of lots of other small denominations and churches, uh, among them there were Jewish, Christian, and also kind of non-religious or, or, or Eastern Far Eastern churches, they were just simply eliminated, they ceased to be, they're struggling along. You would think that some of the major religions, like say the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church, even if they're not impacted by this law, they would see how the government is targeting these other groups and think maybe we're next or something like that. Why haven't they been speaking out? Uh, no, actually, they don't see that, and it works the other way around. That they are exposed to the government policies, and they are they they are quite scared of it. So they decide to be servile uh, and supportive of the government, and they know very well that if they speak up for the persecuted and express this solidarity, all the subsidies and all the support will be withdrawn for, from them. And this is why the only kind of historical church that stood up for us and for the persecuted was the, the greatest Hungarian Jewish denomination. That was the only church that officially expressed their solidarity with us. Interesting. Well, I have a couple more questions, but I would like to read this. In 2019, Orban gave an interview with the Atlantic magazine, and the interviewer brought up the situation with the Hungarian evangelical fellowship and the church law uh and orban's excuse of why this was going ahead was he said i know ivani well he baptized two of my children but it was a decision by the parliament which is absolutely responsible for church affairs and then later after a pause he says moreover he called me a fascist and that is the only thing for which i cannot forgive him so just as a little aside, I think it's interesting that he says it was a government decision, but then he corrects himself and says it's for personal reasons. But uh, leaving that aside, do you still agree today that uh, you would consider Orban a fascist? So I was not actually on a face value. I was naming him a fascist. I was... Um... A little more delicately, I, I stress that what he's doing is the same as was done during the fascist eras. But I do keep up that what he is doing, that is the same as, as was taking place in the fascist dictatorships. In this kind of Hungarian reality now, uh, kind of centralization that is taking place and, and the, all the intolerance and impatience towards minorities, that is kind of parallel with fascism. But I would say that he can be very angry with me, but it doesn't entitle him to take away my basic rights. And this again underlines or emphasizes that 
such things can happen only in the, the fascist-like dictatorships or authoritarian regimes. Where do you think, if this trend continues, that religious freedom in Hungary and, and Hungarian evangelical fellowship will find themselves in the future? Actually, as the tax authority has imposed mortgage on our churches, again, can find ourselves in a situation we will be bound again to preach on the street. So this is the total elimination, is that what probably is uh, our lot. And it is about all the other churches that they don't raise their voice against the policies of the Hungarian government. These policies kind of drag us into a precipice. But the role of the Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship is that we speak up, we do speak up. We cannot afford not to speak up. For example, as for the support of Ukraine, that the Hungarian government is anti-Ukrainian, and we, the Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship and, and its network, supports and helps conveys aid to the Ukrainian. If the others don't speak up, they might get away with it. And we might end up again preaching in the street and even exposed to imprisonment because this was also kind of implied at the point that we start a criminal procedure. Orban, as you mentioned, portrays himself as a religious man. He speaks a lot about God and Christianity. And a lot of people in the English speaking world, they see that and they think, well, this man is trying to bring religion back into society. He's somebody to support. He's. Uh, uh, we need to get behind what he's doing and and support him as a minister of religion living in Viktor Orban's Hungary with everything you described what do you have to say to that point of view i think that this is a kind of political christianity what he represents actually jesus has a kind of top hit parable when he's talking about the last times when he is separating the, the, the people he says that there will be a lot lots of people who will say we were here with you we were eating with you we were talking with you and then i will say to to them that keep away from me i don't know you because i was hungry i was expelled and you didn't give me food and uh, you didn't give me a shelter and actually this is what orban is doing a kind of busybodying about christianity a kind of uh, trying to to position themselves but this is political christianity this is done for political reasons for political profits and not genuine christianity not not genuine support for the poor and the, the people in need and i i deem that in other countries where where he is portrayed or perceived as a kind of religious man this is the same temptation. And they are forgetting and Jesus is saying that my kingdom is not from this world. So I, I, I deem that this is only a kind of instrument for political gains and uh, has nothing to do with genuine Christianity, which means being Christ-like. That, that's what Christianity means. I think we'll leave it at that. I just wanted to mention one thing. I've spoken to the Russian uh, Human Rights Group Memorial and some of the problems they've been having about being liquidated and whatnot. And the situation with Hungarian Evangelical Fellowship sounds almost exactly what they are going through in Russia right now, which considering 
they don't even really pretend to be a democracy, I think, says a lot about uh, uh, what, what Orban is doing in Hungary. Dr. Ivanie, I want to thank you again for uh, taking this time to speak with us, and uh, I hope everything works out the best it can for you going forward. We thank you very much for your interest, and I do uh, wish uh, the blessing of God on your work. of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. This is Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3 FM. Thank you again for joining us on the show today. That was trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic speaking with Dr. Gabor Ivanyi about the true state of freedom and religion in Viktor Orban's Hungary. And for any listeners who would like to understand this, In the big picture context, I would encourage you to take a look at Mihailo's article on this topic. It's called The Strongman, the Pontiff, and the Ancient Empire. This article takes a deep dive into Viktor Orban's Hungary, and it places it in the context of a European continent that is bound to unify politically, but that is utterly unable to do so without some stronger force than politics. And that force is religion. This is something that the Philadelphia Trumpet and our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, have been warning about for decades, and Mihailo's article shows why we've been issuing those warnings, and how Orban's Hungary could really factor into all of it. So we will leave a link to that article in our show notes for today's episode. You can find that on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com if you click on the Listen tab up at the top of the page and then look for Trumpet Hour. Well, we have only one more segment in today's episode of Trumpet Hour, and this is a last word segment that takes a look at all the turmoil and upheaval that are shaking the nations and even happening inside our own countries. And it asks, during this time when so much credibility has been squandered, and lost, where can we put our trust? What can we really have faith in? For this, we'll turn it over to trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. The world is still shocked at what happened less than 20 days ago in Israel. When these sort of tragic events happen, they are emotionally upsetting, and it is easy to be overwhelmed emotionally or just to simply avoid it altogether. Turn the channel and refuse to to read into what actually happened. It is hard to read about how families are murdered, uh, children beheaded and burned to death, and all these terrible things that Hamas did on October 7th. It isn't easy to digest world news like that, but it is important that we do so, because these sort of events give us signals that we need to recognize. In the November-December 2023 trumpet, 
Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry in his lead article called A Sign of Worse to Come, this is what he wrote. This is important to realize. Otherwise, you will not grasp the significance of what has happened in the Jewish state of Israel. This nightmare is a foreshadowing and a sign of a time of unprecedented suffering prophesied to come upon the whole world very soon. End quote. The barbarous atrocities we saw happen in Israel is just a small taste of what is coming to the entire world. The Bible says that worse is to come. We all watch world news. I'm sure many of you listeners are avid news hawks and you try to keep on top of what's happening in the world. And we can all see the terrible things happening, not just in Israel. We see our governments in the West are becoming more unstable. The economy is falling apart. War just keeps spreading uh, from nation to nation to different continents. And everyone is looking for answers. We all want to know why this is happening, but also what is going to happen in the future. So where do we go to find these answers? In addition to that question, there's, an, there's another one we should be asking ourselves right now. What are you putting your faith in? As we look for answers, as we watch world events, we need to be thinking about faith. Faith is going to be the most important commodity on this earth as times get worse. Look at what Christ said in Luke 18, verse 8, that at his second coming, at the end of all these terrible events, look at the question he asks. Luke 18, verse 8 says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on earth? So when Jesus Christ returns, when that prophesied second coming happens, will he find faith? That's a pretty big question for him to ask. And so in these emotionally turbulent times, we need to know what faith is. We need to know exactly what faith is. And we need to be aware of a common pitfall, and that is confusing faith with emotion. In our uh, correspondence course from Herbert W. Armstrong College, Lesson 13, this is what it says, quote, Many people make the mistake of confusing faith with emotions. They try to work up faith, which to them means an emotional feeling. But that is not faith. That is feeling. A worked up feeling does not show that you have faith. Faith has only to do with God's word. The one question is, has God promised it in his Bible? If he has, then probabilities possibilities, feelings, convictions, and impressions have absolutely not one thing or the other to do with faith, End quote. Faith is not a feeling. It is simply believing what God has said in the Bible. We need to know what the Bible says and believe it. And so as we see world events happen, and we see things that rattle our emotions, we need to be careful that we know what faith is, and we don't confuse it with our feelings. Believe it or not, these perilous times that we're living in right now are a golden opportunity to build faith because we are witnessing the dramatic fulfillment of Bible prophecy.
So let's look at how we can use these turbulent times we're living in to build real faith. The Bible definition of faith is in Hebrews 11 verse 1, which says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in other words, faith is an assurance, the confidence that God will perform what he has promised in his word. The late Herbert W. Armstrong wrote in the What is Faith booklet, quote, Then again, faith is an evidence, the evidence of things not seen. Faith precedes the actual receiving of what you ask for, and faith is the evidence you shall have it before you even see it. It is the evidence of things not yet seen. You do not have it, you do not see it or feel it, yet faith is your evidence that you have or shall have it. Faith is the substance, the assurance of receiving that which you still hope for. End quote. Mr. Armstrong later summed up the meaning of that paragraph I just read to you with this simple phrase. Faith is simple reliance upon God's word. Faith is simple reliance upon God's word. So faith isn't a feeling or an emotion or something we can work up. Faith is knowing what God has said he will perform in the Bible, believing God, and then we orientate our thoughts, attitudes, and actions around that confidence in God's word. So that's what faith is in a nutshell. And it's very important to God. You can see that in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, which says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's impossible to please God without faith. That also means it's impossible to be saved without faith. The entire Bible, our entire lives, if we're Christians, it revolves around God's promise of salvation, the promises in God's word. As humans, we can be changed into spirit beings when Christ returns. We know God is reproducing himself. He's building a spiritual family. Salvation is the process of God building his family. However, we need to make sure we understand this, is that salvation is a gift. It's not something we can earn or deserve. Now, Romans 6.23 says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So eternal life of being in God's family is a gift. However, God has imposed conditions on receiving this gift. So it's a gift with conditions, and this gift is given to us through God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is a down payment of that promise. And you can, if you want to read this later, it's in 2 Corinthians 1.22. It's the earnest or the, the down payment of God's Spirit that seals us or it, it, it makes us uh, ready for that future inheritance of eternal life. If eternal life is a gift and there's conditions, what are the conditions? Well, Ephesians 2 verse 8 tells us one of them, and this verse says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So grace means unmerited pardon. It means that God, he gives us 
a gift because he wants to. It's not because we earn it or that we can demand it from him. But he wants to give it to us. But notice it says through faith. Faith is one of the conditions to receiving God's gift. So in order to receive God's Holy Spirit, we need to have faith. And we need to keep growing in faith. Remember, we just get that small down payment, but it needs to keep growing. However, this faith that the Bible talks about, the saving faith, it isn't human faith. So in Romans 1 verse 17, it says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So when we're first converted or when we first come into contact with God's truth, we have to act on our human faith. We, we read the Bible. We believe what God says. We believe in God's existence. And we're convicted to act, take action, and, and obey God. Do what he says to do to receive God's Holy Spirit. And that when we do that, we're taking steps on our human faith. It's what we can believe as, as humans apart from God's Spirit. However, after we receive that down payment of God's Spirit, we need to have a very different kind of faith. And that is the faith of Jesus Christ. And that's the faith in which we need to live by. Uh, So Galatians 5, verse 22 through 23, you can see that the fruits of the Spirit, so the fruits or the character that is built in our life when we have God's Spirit, one of them is faith. You can also read Galatians 2, verse 20, which Paul says that Christ lives in him. And that's the faith that he lives by. And so we need to understand that when we have God's Spirit, it's Jesus Christ living in us. It's a living faith. And that's the faith that allows us to build holy, righteous character. That's the power that, that will build holy, righteous character in us. And so as Romans 1.17 said, we need to live by faith, to just live by faith. And that's the faith we need to have. The faith of Jesus Christ needs to be our lifestyle. And that's what Christ said when he was on this earth. When he was a man fulfilling his his earthly ministry, he said that he doesn't do any of the works. It's the Father dwelling in him does them. It's through the power of God's Spirit that Christ was able to perform miracles and and do his ministry. And that's a, a pattern that's That's the example we need to follow in our lives today. So how do we build faith? Well, the Bible points out two major ways we build faith. So one is education and the other is application. In Romans 10 verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We have to inform our faith because faith is knowing the promises of God. It's believing what God's word says. If we don't know God's word, then how can we have faith in it? So we inform our faith by doing daily Bible study, reading uh, literature produced uh, by the Philadelphia Church of God, being educated on God's way of life. That This is how we learn what God's will is and what God's promises are. That's how we learn more about Bible prophecy. As we learn and we inform our faith, then it sets the stage for the next way we, we grow in faith, and that is through application. So we have to be educated, but we also have to then apply it. So once we know what God says to do, then we have to do it. We have to act on our belief in what God says. 
So faith is one of the conditions for salvation, and the other is obedience. God expects us to obey his laws, to do what he says in his word. So we don't earn salvation, we don't earn God's free gift through works, but works are what build our faith. And we can see that in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, going to verse 20. I'll read those to you, and it says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and has not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. So what James is saying here is that we can't have faith if we're not doing what God's word says. It's not enough just to believe it. We need to act on that. And that's dead faith. Dead faith is not having any works. But notice what James, what he says in the next verse. Yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So even Satan and the demons, the ones who are authoring all the terrible things in this world, they believe in God and they tremble before him. So if belief isn't enough, we need to have works. Faith without works is dead. We can believe what God says in the Bible, but we need to be obeying him. We need to be following what it says. Stepping out on faith means having faith with works. Because remember, this is important, is that faith comes before possession. We have to step out in faith knowing God will do what he says before we actually see the end result. We have to believe prophecy before it's fulfilled. That's faith. Once a prophecy is fulfilled, we don't need faith anymore. We can see it. We, we know the event's been, been fulfilled. And this, this applies to prophecy, this applies to everything. It takes real faith, stepping on faith first, and then we have the possession. Then, then the event or the promise is fulfilled. So as, as you and I, as we watch world news, we need to be applying these points. That as we inform our faith, as we inform ourselves on what the Bible says, what's going to happen, uh, on what prophecies we're looking for to be fulfilled. We need to believe they're going to happen because it's easy to trust our eyes, to trust what we uh, feel, what we, what we hear, more than what God says. That's very human. We all, we all do it. It's easy to walk by sight and not by faith. But with so many world events happening now, it's a golden opportunity to learn to walk by faith. We are even in a, in a golden position because we can look back on so many fulfilled prophecies that leave no doubt that God always keeps his word. This is what the late Herbert W. Armstrong said in the World Tomorrow program, talking about the proof of, of God's existence. This is what he said, quote, There are many lines of proof, and one of them is prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. And that's one, let me tell you, that no agnostic, no atheist, no skeptic has ever tried to disprove. They can't do it. 
There is a great deal of prophecy that was intended to be fulfilled prior to this time and has been fulfilled hundreds of years, even thousands of years after the prophecy was written. And it stands there as living proof and as a daring challenge to the skeptics as to whether a man wrote a prophecy way back there and was able to bring it to pass, or whether a God did, and whether the Bible is that word and whether this word stands. There is a great deal of prophecy that stands fulfilled. End quote. Fulfilled prophecy is the proof of God. The world events happening right now is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And don't take my word for it. You can prove it for yourself. Take out your Bible and read all the many different prophecies that you hear referenced on the trumpet daily or in all the many books and booklets written by Herbert W. Armstrong and Gerald Flurry. Take the literature and read it. Go to the scriptures. Study them. And a lot of our literature points out when prophecy was fulfilled as a matter of historical fact. This is a way we can prove prophecy and God's word. And then we can step out on faith because there's still a lot of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. We're living in very dramatic and exciting times. We're living in a time where everyone's looking for answers on why everything is going the way it is in this world. But remember, faith is needed before possession. We need to believe what the Bible says is going to happen. We need to believe the prophecy is not yet fulfilled and prove God and believe that God will keep his word, that those will be fulfilled. When we believe God's word, when we have real faith and we start living by faith, it revolutionizes our lives. God's word is filled with so many promises, promises that we can claim. Some of these promises are prophecy. God promises that these events are going to happen in the future. Other promises are about how God will protect us, how God will intervene on the behalf of those who obey and fear him. The Bible is full of such promises, but we need to have faith. We need to live by faith. So as you watch world events, you need to know where you can find the answers. And you have to believe in those answers. And that source of the answers is God's word, the Holy Bible. This is how we can answer Christ's question and say, yes, he will find faith on earth when he returns. To study more into the subject, I encourage you to read uh, Mr. Armstrong's booklet, What is faith. We are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com. And you can find links there to the article and to the booklet that today's segments were based on. That's at thetrumpet.com. Also, you can email us any comments or questions you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to Dr. Gabor Ivanyi, Mihailo Zekic, and Mr. Abraham Blondeau for their contributions. Thanks also to Isaac Lorenz for taking care of the audio editing for this episode. And thanks very much to each of you listeners for spending some of your time with us today. Until next time, keep watching your world. Music.